0: What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to
1: Dropping In, everyone. Today, we shake it off and find out that the new first couple, President Joe Biden and Dr. Joe Biden, are not going to be scowling at us from their photographs or swatting away their hand-holding, that they are truly a loving, enduring couple who have withstood personal tragedy. Joe Biden lost his wife and young daughter in a car crash in 1972. Then Jill Biden stepped in as wife and mother to two young boys, Beau and Hunter. They'd already been critically injured, but miraculously recovered. Our guest today, Betsy Graziani-Fespinder, knows firsthand about this landmine of family fusion. And she writes about it in her memoir, Filling Her Shoes. Welcome, Betsy.
2: Hi, Diane. Thank you so much for having me
1: this morning. Lovely to have you. You are a polymath with this book. Uh, You have a podcast called The Morning Glory Project and a novel, Fire and Water, a suspense-filled story of art, love, passion, and madness. What more could you want? And another (laughs) nonfiction book, From Page to Stage, also published by She Writes Press, These can all be found on your website, com. We do have a bio for you, but please introduce yourself uh, in any way you'd like to. Tell us who you are.
2: I am a believer in stories. (laughs) That's the fastest way I can say it. And My whole life, both my intimate and my professional and my social life has been, I recognize only in looking back at it dedicated to either telling or helping others to tell their stories. I've been Mm -hmm. a therapist for nearly 30 years. I help writers write their stories. I'm a public speaking coach and help people tell their stories. And I write and tell my own. And then, of course, with the Morning Glory Project, I feature survivors and thrivers and innovators and trailblazers of all kinds, sharing their stories of determination. And Diane, I really believe, and I've come to believe even more firmly, that stories are our most intimate human quality, and in sharing them, it's how we build bridges to one another. It's how we come to understand ourselves first and then each other next. So that's Mm -hmm. what I do in my family life as well. Same thing.
1: Well, it's one of the oldest forms of communication, right? It's family stories passed down to generations. It's people sitting around a campfire. I've listened to your Morning Glory Project podcast interview with Pam Houston and your reflections on how the Trump administration triggered you both Uh, You were both survivors of domestic abuse abuse and violence, and maybe all of us were somewhat uh, traumatized in terms of abuse of authority. What happens now feels like a bit of a reinstatement, right? The restoration of what's sacred, branches of the government, our constitution, trust, and us as a people. And that was a sense that I got from reading your book, Filling Her Shoes. In order to mm. move into this family, you had to acknowledge and respect what was sacred, the memory of the deceased mother, Janet. How did that happen for you? What was that?
2: Oh, excuse me, our sound cut out just there for a second. The memory of a deceased, did you say mother mm. or brother?
1: The the memory of the deceased mother, Janet, who was yes. your, your husband, Tom's um, first wife um, her, yes. his late late wife and I felt, yeah. I, felt yes. it, I felt as though this whole recognition of what's sacred it was so thematic to me both in our times and in reading your book and I just wondered did that come naturally to you? How was that for you?
2: Well you know so I married my husband was widowed young and uh, his wife was taken far too soon and I, I happened to have known her and I knew of their son when he was born. Um, So when after her death, some significant time after her death, Tom and I began seeing each other, I stepped in and I realized that if I was going to love this man, uh, that he came as a package, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that I was stepping in to the shoes of someone taken too soon. So I, I knew that from jump. But I also just knew that losing a mother is just such a poignant thing for a for a child and that I wanted her memory celebrated. So what the the truth that came out to me as I was writing this story and I hope in sharing it is that what I discovered was that I had this tremendous gift. I had I had this inherited family whom I loved. And I was so joyful in having it, but that it came as a result of a tragic loss. Mm -hmm. So what has been true in my life for the last nearly 30 years of my marriage is that grief and gratitude, love and loss, those are not opposites. They're cohabitants. They're roommates. And that very often we struggle to, to decide how should I feel about something. It's like if somebody has a loved one that they've been caring for who's been ill for a very long time and the person passes away, of course they're sad to lose the one they love, but they're also relieved because it's been such hard work. And they often feel so guilty about that. So mm-hmm. in my own family, love and loss, grief and gratitude had to coexist. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's true for all of us. And the same is true as we watch what's going on in the nation. We can be still infuriated and disgusted by what has happened and want justice to be served, and we want to move forward. And those two things do not have to live as opposites. They can cohabitate. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that you, as a person, just innately have this gift of compassion. Being able to walk around and see the other side, see that the loss that your loved one Tom was experiencing and his son Max was experiencing, and yes, you—you know—you—you you mentioned you are a therapist and a good one. Uh, I, I think that you know. I think that somehow there's something innate. Um, this pain of grief. It reminds me so much of, of grief and gratitude. Grief is the price we pay for love. Um, the pain of grief is just just as much a part of life as the joy of it. And is perhaps the price we pay for love the cost of commitments? That's um, from bereavement. That's the um, Colin Mary Parks, 1928 quote. He was an English psychiatrist, actually. And it, it's it's interesting how we've now started to really embrace this duality. I'm kind of reminded of something um, from the 1980s, this idea of position power versus personal power, because you certainly recognized, um, it seems to me, that the title mother to Max, the title wife to your husband, Tom, was sort of paled in comparison to who you needed to be as a person, your integrity, your sensitivity, yes, your compassion. And, you know, that also granted you something because personal power can't be taken away. If you just went in Mm -hmm. and said, I'm the new mom, like, that's not going to cut it, right? I wondered about Mm -hmm. this balance of position power and personal family power, personal power in the family and how that worked for you.
2: Well, you know... It sort of makes me think of something almost kind of funny, because when I I launched this book, I asked my audience, which we we could meet in person then, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. I asked my live audience, when you hear the word stepmother, what's the adjective that almost always precedes it? And overwhelmingly, they said either wicked or evil.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And... You know, that comes from all of every Disney movie, every <laughs> every Shakespeare play, right? We, we've seen the evil stepmother as an archetype. And I so didn't want to be that. And I've right. never believed that I have a stepson or that my younger son has a half-brother. All of those disqualifying qualifiers bothered me. So I like to think of... Stepmothers that step into the shoes of a mother taken too soon or a mother incapable of taking care of her children for one other reason or another, or fathers for that matter too, that they are step-in mothers. And that on Mother's Day and Father's Day, I wish that we would celebrate Mothering Day and Fathering Day because so much of our loving and parenting sometimes doesn't come from a parent for whatever reason, either death or divorce or mental illness or addiction, any of those kinds, or neglect or abuse, of course, in some cases. So I, I kind of shun the, the fixed role, and I just think my job was to come in and love my family and protect my son. He'd already had the worst thing that could happen to a little kid happen, and how could I possibly make that worse by competing with his mother's memory rather than embracing it, rather mm-hmm. than welcoming that? Mm-hmm. I see and as a therapist and as a human, I see lots of families that, t- that competition of the roles seems to be such a destructive force. I just didn't want that.
1: Mm-hmm. I think competition is somewhat of a destructive force. And I love that you mention about step. It's so interesting to me, you know, f- stepping into the shoes, filling her shoes. Mm-hmm. That step is such a different step than the hyphenated step of, mm-hmm. of stepmother or half-brother. Half um, Max, right. y- Max was quite young, right? He, he, how old was Max when he lost Janet as his he mother? He had just
2: turned five when so he tender. lost his mom. So and he tender. was six and a half when I first, uh, when his dad and I first started seeing each other in seven when we got married.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a love story for sure. And I, I think you place that love front and center. I'm reminded by what you just said about, of course, the evil um, archetype, but also, you know, Ann Patchett in conversation with Brooke Warner, the publisher at She Writes Press, who published the book. Uh, filling her shoes. She had a conversation with Anne Patchett recently, and um, Anne Patchett, you know, the author of The Dutch House, mm-hmm. said, You know, I, I just looked at everything an awful stepmother might be. Anne Patchett is herself a stepmother, and she put that into the character, into the book. Um, mm-hmm and stepchildren are now in their 40s and um you know none of this resembles you and but it seems to me that you maybe you also worked off opposites right you're playing counter to, you're playing counter to point counter to role. Mm-hmm. i think so too and you know you mentioned in your opening uh,
2: Joe and Jill Biden of course and Jill Biden had a role like mine she was stepping in to parenting for a mother taken too soon. And I was touched during the Democratic National Convention convention how she, she talked about our children. She didn't say my children and my stepchildren. She just mm-hmm. said our children. And I was really touched by that and, and thought, yes, that's how I want to view this. And if you really, I view my older son, I have two sons, one grew in my body, (laughs) both grew in my heart, and they are, I I see no difference in them other than, for one, I have an additional task of helping him to remember his first mother. Other than that, I have two sons. Mm -hmm. So it is archetype busting in a way, but to me, it just seems like such the more natural way to be, that it seems that the other way, that competitive way, is an unnatural way, that people see, have to fight to keep that kind of anger up
1: mm-hmm. for
2: all those years, don't
1: they? Oh, absolutely. You know, the only other thing I would say, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, is that sometimes people try to be politically correct. They try to acknowledge the presence of the late mother by saying I'm the stepmother, almost as a way of not taking credit for for these beautiful mm-hmm. children that you have, I I don't know, I, it's lame, and I think that your um, your way of saying no, my heart is what takes precedence. These are my mm-hmm. children, um, so these you know, the, and they love one another, Max and Sam, which is so mm-hmm. heartening from your book as well. I wondered how how it was for you. You're a self-confessed introvert. How was it for you to write the memoir, to bring out all of this tenderness, and to have it be um, seen and experienced by the world?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I I wrote these stories kind of as they were happening, and with never an intention of sharing them. I, uh, Anais Nin said, that she writes to taste life twice. And mm-hmm. I always say, I write so that I can understand my life once. <laughs> I, I write it, that's my process for doing that. And I was writing and documenting these stories in, in journal-ish form uh, while I was stepping in because I didn't want to burden my husband or my new son with my own worries and angst about it all. I just didn't mm-hmm. think that was fair. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote them for myself only, and it wasn't until my, my son was in his teens that I got invited to read at an event that was de- devoted to the theme of motherhood. And I thought, well, maybe one of those would work, but I, I asked him first. I, didn't, I wouldn't have aired it publicly had it not been with his blessing. He was old enough to have a choice at that point, And he said, oh, no, that's fine. He's very accepting of such things and delightful that way. And when I read the story, I thought it would be a very idiosyncratic, little, humble story of mine. But what happened is, when I read that story out loud, I had so much reaction from this audience. There were maybe 30 or 40 people in the room. And honestly, I probably got 25 emails saying... My sister, can I have a copy of that story for my brother, for my sister, for my cousin, for my friend, for my neighbor? Because that's what she's going through. That's what he's going through. And I I began to think I had something and I started to look at the different stories I'd written and assembled them. So it was never my intention to share them, but back to what I started with, I think that the connection, the, the sharing of our stories is such a bridge from human to human. And when we tell them people's secrets come out. For example, I, I lost a pregnancy very late in pregnancy when, when I was nearly six months along, and it was a tragedy, and it was awful. But when that happened, women that I knew for had known for decades suddenly started telling me about their miscarriages. So in the sharing of my experience, they could share theirs and I didn't even know them. I had known them for decades but didn't know they'd experienced that. So we began to have this support and connection by sharing those things. So from those of us who are naturally introverted, we learn the benefits of sharing our story and connecting. If we do it, you know, one on one or if we do it more publicly as I have done, it's the same. I now consider myself an omnivert, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite introverted and not quite extroverted, so I'm an omnivert.
1: You've come out of yourself. Well, the connection building is worth it, right? It's really something bigger than we are as people. And I think that you, you know, it's a larger problem. <sighs> Per purpose, um, I remember so well reading about it was called a fetal demise. Um, you were carrying twins into your sixth month of pregnancy, and I think mm-hmm. both of these both of these stories, Betsy, are underserved. That of how awkward it can be to step into the role of a stepmother, and how, in the dark, um, and how alone you can feel when you have lost a pregnancy. You write. Uh, in Filling Her Shoes, grief and loss, those bitches never leave. And that's so true, and thank you for saying it. Um, I think it's some sort of this acceptance of grief as kind of a friend in the family, that it's a nonlinear experience, that it's going to circle back, that it's going to be with you forever. Those bitches never leave. I think that that's just so fantastic in terms of a level of acceptance of being real with the situation um, and hmm. on the on the other on to, to flip onto the other side i loved when you you know unfortunately you did have this experience you and tom of the the the, cho- the children that you had conceived losing them but then you're headed back to work on the ferry you live in the san francisco bay area you're you're headed back to work And you see the sun sparkling on the water and you decide to get, you decide to take another route to work and you walk a different route and you come across this old woman with a vendor table and little tchotchkes set out and you're drawn to one. And it's these two carved figures of tiny angels, one smaller than the other, as your, as your twins were. I just wonder if you could speak to this synchronicity, to this specialness of this kind of event, to this kind of message that kind Mm -hmm. of pierced into your reality at that point? Well, you know,
2: on one hand, we can look at that like there's some kind of psychic magic in the universe and all of that, and that may be true, and that's a topic for another, another program, perhaps. But I think it's that when when you choose to live on, and I say that, I say live on as opposed to get over. You know, a lot of people want you to get over grief or loss or tragedy. I think you choose to live with it and move with it. And so I think that when you make the choice to live with and to move with this as part of your life, that you start looking for Sparkle. You start looking for joy and miracles and things that are reminiscent but not agonizing. When I saw those two little angels carved and one slightly smaller than the other from a woman who was clearly homeless, she she was she she really had a, a blanket on the on the ground and uh, she was very broken and she was silent she never said a word and she was selling things like one shoe that didn't have a mate and broken cups and things and she had these two little angels and i just thought you know i don't know the source of such things but i'm going to take it as an affirmation for me and i'm going mm-hmm. to try to give this woman a blessing too so it's i think it's about trying to Deciding where we're going to put our gaze, Diane, that's how I think of it, that I could choose to focus only on the loss and the tragedy of that, or I could choose to focus on the miracles and the moments that come along that restore. And both of those are true, but where do I want to put most of my attention?
1: These are choices. And do I want to
2: ignore those things,
1: Right. I mean, these are the choices you were making consciously. You know, you could feel sorry for yourself or you could focus on the sparkle in the water. You could um, just, you know, you you could have had a sort of um, despondent feeling, but instead you were looking for... You were turning your gaze in a certain way, and you were maybe inviting into your into your gaze um, the positive, which I think is is it is a choice. It's a conscious choice. Um, you it did, is,
2: uh, and I'll tell you the other the other option that morning. You know, here I was. I had carried babies to more than six months, and I was going back to work a month later. And it, earlier on in that morning, I was all concerned about. You know whether my tum- w- what clothing I should wear because I wasn't quite back to my regular size and I couldn't wear maternity clothing and I had to work. I was working in a financial district. You have to dress a certain way, and I was all on a twitter about that until finally I thought, you know, it really doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Nobody right. will care but me. And I right. just wore a loose fitting pair of pants and went on with it. And then I then I encountered that beautiful little miracle.
1: Yes, so it's you a- you were. It's a blessing that you created in a certain way. And you, you kind of made space for imperfection by saying, look, I'm going to accept myself first the way I am. And you're right, it doesn't matter. We're going to stop for a commercial break here. And when we come back, we're going to lighten up because yes, there were sad parts, um, but there were extremely funny parts. And we're <laughs> going to talk about how Max did mistake your tampon for chocolates that he should put in his lunchbox. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back on dropping in. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home,
2: go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa.
0: Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She writes press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company, Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects, while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz, while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit BooksForward.com or send us an email at info at BooksForward.com. A JKS communications company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at dianduey.com. That's Diane at dianduey.com. Now, back to Dropping In.
1: Welcome back everyone. We're here with Betsy Graziani Fassbinder. It's a perfect name and through reading her book Filling Her Shoes, I learned the evolution of this name. Um each part of it was chosen. We were just talking about the concept of choices. Um, that was a great part of this story, Betsy. Um, and, and I think it, it, it speaks volumes. Just, do you want to just recap it for us, this name? Oh, the story of my ridiculous name? Of your but, name, well, yes. Well, well,
2: I'll give you, uh, here's how I say it. I have three names, Betsy, Graziani, Fosbinder, and not one of them is original issue. They all got changed, and for good reasons, and I I was born Betty House, and, but I was always called Betsy, so when I finally went away, I was an introvert at school, so they called me Betty the whole time at school, and I hated it, because that was Mm -hmm. what was on the official transcript, so when I went away to college, I changed it officially to Betsy, so I was Betsy House. Then I got married young, that marriage didn't last, and I had my former husband's name, and when I Left him. I decided I wasn't going to take my father's name. My father was a neglectful and abusive parent, and I didn't really want to to identify with him or his family. So I took my maternal grandmother's grandfather's name, which was Graziani, and I thought that will be my name forever, Betsy Graziani. And I thought, well, that has kind of an alliterative sound. I like it. I'm proud of it. I, it, I created both names. I'm happy with it, and I'm never changing it again. Well, then when I Mary was getting ready to marry Tom. It was just a week before we were to marry, and I was going to keep my name, as many women do. And Max, who was then seven, came in, and he said, Hey, it's kind of funny. You're going to be Betsy Fospender from now on. And I said, Oh, sweetheart, you know, no. lots of women don't change their name. And I gave this very kind of you know, professorial explanation as to why I wasn't changing my name. And he looked up with his big old chocolate brown eyes and said, so, we're not going to be a whole family? Mm. Mm. And I thought, That's, no, nothing about my name and all that I'd claimed of it mattered in that moment. What mattered was that we were a family to him. Yes. So, I have this ridiculous name, <laughs> Betsy Graziani Fassbinder. And well, actually, I love it now.
1: Well, I, I, I do too now that I know the story and there again the significance <laughs> of stories. I, I was, I must say, always curious about it. Um, Betsy Graziani fassbender doesn't roll off the tongue. No. Um I, I did it's, come to it, no learn- one can
2: spell it, no one can say it. <laughs> well it's a Betsy, terrible it- website name.
1: No, it's it's actually once you get the hang of it, though you never forget it. It's it's B E T S Y G A R Z I A N I F A S B I N D E R dot com. There you have it. But you know, there I you think have the fact. There you have it. And I I think the fact, again, I mean, this is going back a ways because Max is now launched out of your home. Um, But I mean, just again, your choice there that, you know, you said, look, the way he looked at the world was more important than a political statement about your name. And I think that there again, your priorities being so um, heartfelt, um, it gives you this personal power. It gives the story but a lot also, of power. But also, please
2: note, you know, for, for my own sake of feminism and for listeners of, of such variety, notice that I didn't get rid of my, the name that I created. I simply added to it. I didn't want to ditch the Graziani. I, so whenever I sign any official papers, when I, when I publish my books, all of me is there, too.
1: That's important. So,
2: I don't want to give the impression that I was willing to completely be subsumed into my right. new role.
1: Right. No. And it's your whole soul, as we've heard one person famously say recently. I think, too, that, you know, in your book, Filling Her Shoes, there are some beautiful photographs. And your grandfather, Graziani, was a noble character, a a huge relief, really, from um, other male characters, including your father, (coughs) who had a horrid temperament. Um, So I I think it's in complete, you know, keeping to, to have... Betsy Graziani Fossbender. <laughs> the saddest, the saddest story, I thought, of, of many that were in the peaks and valleys, but was the Mother's Day, your first Mother's Day when you were with Tom yeah. and Max. And nobody made a move. Nobody, you know, you're with guys and guys (laughs) maybe don't remember these kinds of things. Plus, they're a little on the silent side. They're a little on the non-communicative side. You really stepped up to the plate with non-verbal communication, both understanding it, learning their cues, all of it. But it's a bit of a test when you're at the first Mother's Day and nobody says happy Mother's Day. So you fell back on your own resources. I think you somehow gritted your teeth. And then at the end of the day, Tom quite spontaneously said to you, you're such a good mommy. That Mm -hmm. must have been so gratifying.
2: It was. And it was at the end of a very troubling day, um... When, you know, I was being all pissy about not being acknowledged (laughs) as a new mom on that morning and feeling a little embarrassed by my desire to have that. And and my guys were just kind of ignoring the day. And so I, you know, I went and had my, you know, my little quiet fit in the shower and wept and all that. And I wrapped Mm. my hair in a towel and came down the stairs. And Max was watching cartoons as kids are wont to do on such a morning, and uh, when I descended the stairs, all of a sudden my very sweet, quiet, almost never shouted little boy started screaming, I mean screaming as if he was in pain, and I kept saying, what, 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 I thought, I was thinking he'd ruptured an appendix or something, Mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't figure it out, and he just kept screaming, and then when his dad came in breathless, he started screaming, take it off, take it off, make her take it off. And in that moment, I looked, and he was looking at my, the towel on my head. And it clicked that his mother was without her hair and wore a turban. And here he saw his second mother descend the stairs wearing a turban. Mm-hmm. And it so was traumatic scary. for him. And that upstaged my little pissy fit about not being acknowledged for Mother's Day. You know, right. it's about perspective and scale, you know and look at I still want to be acknowledged on mother's day these days don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with wanting that but in the context of that it was nothing mhm
1: um janet um it, actually her she had a terminal illness and she was a cancer victim so i think it yes. was leukemia um and you triggered unwittingly in max um but you you also triggered something in yourself which was get beyond yourself you know which is so hard to do sometimes and you you also talk quite a bit in the book about how you do cope with trauma it seems to me that you have a great deal of self knowledge as a reservoir you talk about how in your childhood, which was fraught with with violent episodes, you learned to cope better than your other sibling, um, sadly, was bore quite a bit of the brunt, because you had a way of, of slowing down time and saying, wait a minute, what, what is happening? You know, I'm now, I'm going to quiet myself. And it seems to me that these moments of quieting yourself have really... Served you well. Hmm. Do you do you feel that even in times when you've had to do this kind of like about face, this coping mechanism is it is it it is not is part of your survival tactic? Is it not, Betsy?
2: Well, it is, you know, Diane. I, there's a phrase that I use that I don't really like, but is true, and that is that not all survivors survive. You know, that not all children from abusive homes or people who have witnessed and endured gun violence episodes or, you know, not all people that survive it survive. And by what that I mean, I'm not talking about the person that got shot or killed. I'm talking about the people who can't live with that memory. They either disappear into um, addiction or other mental health issues or even take their own lives, as happened in my own family. So I don't know whether this ability to kind of be, as you say, be, be quiet with it, be still with it, is a, is a gift that I got or a decision that I made. I have another sister who is very similar, who, who is my dear friend and survived in a similar way. But I do think that it's something we can teach. I think that, that for those who sustained a trauma, to give them permission to live with it and to not pretend it isn't so and to provide them the care and nurturance that I was able to find from other loved ones, from later on from therapists and good mentor teachers and those kinds of things. That, it's a cultivated skill, not something that I just magically have. And by the way, that skill in this last four years has been really taxed for me. Sure. That This has been tough. I've experienced my own difficulties with watching an abusive person rise to power and get celebrated. It's very triggering, as you started this, as Pam Houston talked about. In fact, a poet that I know, Molly Fisk, recently wrote just right after the inauguration. She said, now the rest of you understand what it's like for us Who Mm -hmm. to watch our abuser die Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that to watch that is a both a tremendous relief and a horror at the same time. So, yeah, I do go inward. Other people have other ways of coping with trauma, that's how I do it. But I think Mm -hmm. it's also about that decision again of where to put your gaze
1: where to put your energies. You know, there is in in general terms of course you mention it as a therapist, the fight, flight, freeze or and then there's a fourth as a woman, notoriously women try to connect whether that's Stockholm syndrome or you know another another version of it. But yeah, I think it's been very difficult for us to try to assimilate a kind of collective trauma and it seems to me that while we were frozen now the thaw now there's regard again for sacred things for humanity for for rights and we start to connect again almost instantly almost instantly it's like people are talking rapidly again about wow wow wasn't that something that we survived um Mm -hmm. and I have to think, you know, you have the Morning Glory Project and it's about resilience and getting through. You must be feeling like you're really the right time at the right place in the right moment to be talking about these stories.
2: Well, you know, I have to tell you, I, start, I launched the Morning Glory Project in October of 2019. So we just had a few episodes under our belt before the pandemic all hit, right? And I have to tell you, there were times that I thought, oh, you know, who's going to want to listen to this right now? I mean, who, there's so much trauma and drama and horror going on. Who's going to want this? And for a long time, it was a weekly program. Now it's bimonthly. Um, when I look back, and when I look with my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I often reminisce and say, you know, listening to these now 55 stories, Of people who have overcome, people who have endured with their humanity intact, people who have sustained trauma but then sustained themselves throughout it. Of all of the things this whole year that has helped me through Honest to Pete, the Morning Glory Project has been, it's helped me. So I hope that for listeners it helps them too. But I've been really inspired in learning how different people find their way through and, and everybody, it's, it's different for everybody. One person finds their way through difficulty by being really active and another person by being very still, another person by embracing nature and another person by making a poster and protesting, you know, so whatever mm-hmm. it is that helps us sustain ourselves and to get ourselves through to the other side when we can see it with a new perspective. That's been exciting. It's been exciting to talk with those people and then doubly exciting to share those conversations on the airwaves as well.
1: Well, I would urge our listeners to tune in to the Morning Glory project. You know, I promised everyone the, the I, I want to look at the role of humor and comic relief. Yeah. It's in it's in your book filling her shoes. And at one point, you know, Max. He he does. You're making his lunch every day. I mean, there's certain routines that I think are also helping to comfort him. Um, you're making his lunch every day. It's such a personal act, and there's a certain number of chips. I think it's 16, not more, not less. And you are, you know, you're you're willing to to go there and to you know help him in in whatever way that you can. He you know says to you what what about that secret chocolate i'd like some chocolate in my lunch it turns out that he has gone upstairs and has gone into your bathroom and he thinks that the tampons must be secret chocolate i'm sorry this was one of the best
2: <laughs> you know sunniest um, well he he comes downstairs Diane let's let's paint the story here he comes downstairs with his palm and in it lays a wrapped tampon that's in a plastic, you know, sheath with little flowers on it, and he says, here, here's the chocolate, because I could saying, honey, there's no, I don't have any secret candy bars, I don't, and, and he said, no, no, the secret ones, the super secret ones, and he, came, he was just so insistent, and then he slid it away, and I didn't think about it, and he came down with this little package in his hand, and there I was, a new mom, and and at that point, my husband had not educated me about how far he had informed his young son about the biology of life and, and such matters. And here I was, and Tom was gone, and, there I, and so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to answer the kids' questions only as he asks them. So I said, sweetheart, that's not a tampon. And he said, what is it? Or oh, that's not a chocolate. Um, I, said, I said, yeah, that's not, a, that's not a candy bar. And he said, what is it? And I said... It's a tampon. Well, what's that for? So I went into this very, you know, scientific little explanation of biology that requires such things. And as I did, I just watched him wilt and wilt and wilt. And pretty soon his little hand was falling and he he just held it up high. He dropped his eyes to the floor and lofted the, the tampon carrying hand up higher and simply said, I don't think I want it in my lunch. (laughs) <laughs> and i just i thought, oh my gosh, this is one of those moments of motherhood that's normal right this hasn't yes. this has got nothing to do with being a stepmother or a half son or any of those terrible things it's just got to do with these are those moments
1: and it and it does get you through i mean it it's it's Connective, also these, you know, these universals. You know, does he know about biology? Does he know about sex, sexuality? You know, he's very young still. But I mean, I think too that you know, you need to hang on to these funny moments, um, just also because the rest of it is sometimes stressful. You're, you know, you're constantly calibrating, recalibrating, and you know, um, processing and helping others to process. So um, I I do think that, you know, as much as, um, you know, you mentioned a couple of times that Tom and Max, and actually then Sam, all kind of, um, you know, sort of deep thinkers, deep feelers, quite intuitive, a lot of them, but not really conversationalists, right? You were kind of drawing things out and kind of, Testing all along the way, and not knowing and you know going as as you could, and you know um, when in doubt saying, Well, what do you think it is? <laughs> like this is great great therapist tactics um, <laughs> but I, I I also wondered about you getting yourself through um, all of this. You had your sister, you lost a sibling, which on top of of all of this. Um preceding trauma, um I have to think that the loss of your loss of your brother who who i think must have inwardly taken he must have internalized some of the anger, and he as you say, some survivors don't survive um, mm-hmm. you know they're you can't weigh it and say well dissociation is better tactic than others you can't possibly do that but dissociation is a natural thing you split right you can't be in the situation it can't be processed if if your father is hitting you or throwing you across the room as he did with your brother i mean these are these are things that you can't process and this dissociation, it's not about having like a special skill or talent. It's just that the psyche somehow protects you in that moment. And, um, you know, in, and in your case, maybe because you were more self-reflective during the time that you were, you know, it got you through and you recognized that during the time that you were assimilating into the new family, your new family, Did you see therapists yourself? What were some of your sanctuaries? What were some of your, you say you wrote, what were the other means that you had to cope?
2: Well, yes, I I certainly have taken advantage of, of therapy and of the writings of wise people and of my own meditation practice, all of those kinds of things. And and most especially, and I think even for me, it's different for different people. But for me, the most important aspect that I had was a deep, and trusting community of support in what I call my family, f r a m i l y, my mm-hmm. their friends and fam- their family. Uh, friends who I regard as family and family members who are my deepest friends. And, And those people with whom I could be deeply and truly honest were a big part of what sustained me. That and my going inward with just me. So, yeah, not all survivors do survive. And heaven help those who either are more fragile or less equipped in whatever way to make it through, I can be heartbroken for that. And I certainly, I believe that my my younger brother was one of those that was more broken than he let us know. Right. And he didn't confide in a community. He didn't have or seek the support that he needed.
1: And Betsy, as you opened, your whole life is now about sharing and the strength in that you've helped us become better people by reading, filling her shoes. And now you have from page to stage where you're helping people gain a voice. I'm just going to thank you so much for being with us on Dropping In. You are um, both an inspiration and a support. Social media handles, Betsy Graziani, Fassbender author. And thank you for unwinding this braid. Thank you for chewing gum and walking at the same time <laughs> with all of your roles. Thanks to Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, our engineers, and to Robert Cialino, our executive producer. Most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe, be compassionate, and like Bruce Springsteen said, join us in the field of hopes and dreams. Till next week, thank you for dropping in.
0: Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.